I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. When I got a letter telling me that my name had been removed from the records of the church, I, I thought it would feel liberating because up to that time, I, it had felt that way. I felt like I was doing something big. Once I got the letter telling me that I was no longer a member of the church, I actually felt really deflated. I felt... Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast. And we're really excited for our viewers and our listeners today because we're still in the faith crisis season. And we have Don Bradley back again. Really excited. Uh, If you remember, we had him talk about his book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. And today we're going to talk about faith crisis. So I know that you have a story. If you could talk a little bit about that, about your, your journey there, and feel free to you know, be as open or not open as you want. Um, I know our listeners can benefit a lot from hearing about your story. Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, it's been kind of a circuitous journey and certainly a very unexpected one uh, at every turn, really. Um, so yeah, and I am, I am now an ex-ex-Mormon. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I started out um, as a very devout. Um, my, my parents were both converts. Uh, I was just kind of a good Latter-day Saint kid. I, I had a kind of spiritual awakening when I was 15 um, and really started thinking more about the importance of spiritual things. And I mentioned in the other podcast that we did, but I'll go into it a little bit uh, for those who didn't hear that, maybe because it's relevant to this story, my first doubts came about in like a really ironic, unusual way. It was family home evening, and uh, <laughs> my dad, for activity, you know, took us to Deseret Book and offered to buy us each a book of our choice. So there, in the general authority section, right uh, between you know uh, Boyd K. Packer and Joseph Fielding Smith, I found B. H. Roberts' books, and I. I was familiar with him that he'd been a journal authority a long time before and um, was really solid. And so uh, when I saw this book by him called Studies of the Book of Mormon, it just looked fascinating, you know. I didn't know the history of it, and neither did apparently the buyers at Deseret Book, uh, because this book was never intended for publication. This is a manuscript he had written decades earlier. He had lived decades earlier. Uh, he had written uh, decades earlier, and it was uh, really like his devil's advocate case against the Book of Mormon so that, you know, defenders of the faith could like preempt like certain challenges to the Book of Mormon. Like he was laying out a case that he knew others might come and lay out later so that, you know, Latter-day Saint scholars could figure out, well, how are we going to deal with this? And he wasn't very specific about putting his belief in there, right? It was mainly just like a journal maybe of him? No, it it wasn't a journal and it wasn't like his beliefs either. It was him like compiling 
evidence to try to make an argument that okay. Joseph that the the Book of Mormon wasn't historical and Joseph Smith could have written it. Okay. Like so he was trying to see what kind of case could I build for this? Right. That's probably not found at Desert mm-hmm. Book anymore, right? Nope. I, I'm probably the only teenager in the entire church oh, who bought this at Deseret Book because it, it shouldn't, I'm sure it wasn't there for long before somebody figured it out, out, right? Get these books um, out of here. Realized, yeah, why, why are we selling this again? You know? Um, but I read it. I got it for Family Home Evening, right? I read it. And I was just blown away. Like uh, up until that point for me, like Nephi had been as real as George Washington. I had no more questioned the, the reality of the one than the other, you know. And But it, it threw open for me the question of, you know, the, the truth of the Book of Mormon. And then if that was up in question, then what about Jesus? What about God? What about life after death? And just I had like lots of doubts and fears when I was 17, you know, and I I grappled with that for a while. I managed to sort of come to a place of relative peace after a while. But but it actually got me started uh, doing a research into church history. Um, I encountered that. I encountered other weird things from the history of the church, you know, around the same time. And so I started um, my family just kind of serendipitously moved to Salt Lake um, from Utah Valley. Um, and, uh, I was within easy distance from the, the bus, uh, to, on the bus to go down to the church archives in downtown Salt Lake. And, uh, I mean, it was even close enough I could walk really, you know? Cool. Um, so all that summer, um, between 11th and 12th grade, right after we moved, I went down every day in my shorts <laughs> like, and was like researching things like the, the history of the Adam God theory and like, you know, oh. like all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. And uh, and stuff about the Book of Mormon. Um, this is how I really got into Mormon history. And then like um, after school, you know, I went to East High after school. I would take the bus down, you know, and like research there. And um, That's cool. I um, like I had I had questions. Um, sometimes those questions were more in the forefront of my mind. Sometimes more in the back of my mind. But I, I came to like a pretty good place with things. I went on a mission to Houston, um, and uh, came back from my mission and kind of picked up a lot of the questions again. You know, started researching more into church history. And the thing that really fascinated me, the thing that increasingly I started to zero in on was was like all things Joseph Smith, right? The origins of the church. I'm interested in anything that I get interested in, I get interested in its origins. And, you know, this was no exception. I, I loved my faith uh, and I was very into that. And so I wanted to know kind of where it came from. And Joseph Smith... Um, you know, his, because this history wasn't just any history. This was sacred history, right? And Joseph Smith, he was like the revelator par excellence, right? You look at the scripture, you look at the canon, Larry St. Canon, and like how much of it's revealed through any given prophet. And there's like, well, you know, Isaiah has a size, pretty big book, bigger than almost any of the other prophets. But then like Moses has, you know, huge amount attributed to him, right? Well, then like, Joseph, the amount that comes through Joseph Smith is like massively beyond Moses, right? It's yeah. bigger than anybody. So I thought, 
if I want to understand more the process of revelation, I need to look at Joseph Smith and what did he know? What was he doing? You know? And so um, I just started studying a lot of, uh, researching a lot of Joseph Smith things and finding things that um, often like weren't the story that I had been told, right? That I'd grown up with. Uh, the story is more complex and some ways it was just different. Um, and, and I, I could like, in different ways, I could kind of like make it fit together, right? But I got to a point several years into this process when I just, I couldn't make things fit anymore. You know, I, without feeling like I was trying way too hard to force them to fit. So you mean? A lot of dissonance. Oh, okay. That's what I was going to ask is, so you're coming across these things that you could no longer just be like, you know what, I saw my testimony, I'll figure it out someday maybe, or there was a reason behind it. Uh, well, I even had questions about the validity of religious experience because oh. I encountered one one thing that I studied. I studied the origins also of Mormon fundamentalism, like the polygamous groups. And people in these different groups would bear their testimonies of their group and its leader, you know. And I started thinking, well... They seem really sure in their testimony of their thing, you know, what makes me sure that like my, my experiences are really valid, you know? Um, and so uh, I started relying less and less on, I, I wanted to ground my faith in like demonstrable, you know, like data, like facts, empirical data that I could perceive intellectually. You know, um, and for a while I thought that I had my faith grounded in that way. And then like a few things that I'd been kind of relying on in my faith, I saw I had like other explanations or they weren't as reliable as they thought. And my, my faith just rather quickly, it had been sort of shrinking for a while. It just suddenly imploded, Whoa. you know, and I stayed active for a while. I, um, I thought the church was a very good thing. I wasn't like, like a lot of people who just like, they, they lose their faith and they think like, you know, what was I doing in that cult? And, you know, like, you know, and there's um, something called the Recovery from Mormonism Board, RFM, at oh. exmormon.org. And there are a lot of people there who just like, they're really angry, you know. I, I didn't feel like that, you know. I, I did feel disillusioned. There was a lot that I was frustrated with. And actually, the longer that I stayed active, after I wasn't believing, kind of the more that tension built up for me and the more the more I was getting frustrated, you know. Um and um I didn't I didn't know what to do with that. Uh but eventually, you know, I came to like a breaking point. I, I stopped going to church. Um and, and by now I had real questions about God. I yeah, I had questions about like um, the evidence for God, but also things like I, I knew of very specific instances of suffering, like the suffering of children that just, I, I thought, how can I square this with God's love, you know? And so I had real questions even about God. Um, and, um, you know, I, I became super disillusioned with Joseph Smith as I went on. Um, as through all this, I continued my research and I I had developed an explanatory model, like like we may not think of it this way, but to understand anything, we develop a model of it. And usually we don't think we're developing a model because we think we're just seeing reality exactly the way that it is, right? 
experts. We're not. We're, we're constructing models, and they may be good models. They may be bad models of reality, right? Or better, or better and worse models, right? But my model of Justice Smith had come to be that Justice Smith was an opportunist. So all the things that a lot of people say, right? Like you know, money, sex, power, right? Like uh, yeah. that was the lens that I had come to start using for Justice Smith. And so my question for anything that Justice Smith did, my question that I was asking about it was, what was in it for him, right? Well, I mean, if you take anybody and ask that question about everything that they do, and you can probably like, you know, like if you have a cynical model of people, you can probably come up with a lot of ways of seeing, well, yeah, but he just did that because, you know, he wanted to like, yes, this was like a good action externally, but maybe he just did it because he wanted the praise of other people, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, I pursued that model for a while and I, it was more complex than that. Right. Um I um, I made a lot of discoveries in early Mormon history and things, you know, relating to Joseph Smith and like the, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Um, even my my project on the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon started while I wasn't a believer. You know, really? Yeah, oh yeah. It started while I didn't I didn't believe, um, and. Um, like, which is interesting because it was actually part of, ended up being part of my coming back. Right? Okay. Um, so um, I, uh, I didn't, I never stopped digging. And um, uh, Christine Hagland is well known in like Mormon studies and was the editor of Dialogue. Um, she gave a talk once where she said that her father um, taught them that uh, the answer to problems created by knowledge is more knowledge. Um, I think sometimes we look at problems created by knowledge and we seem to think the answer is less knowledge, right? Like um, we want to sort of deny certain historical data that have been uncovered, you know, like, like, well, we need less of that, you know, sweep that under the rug, right? And actually, my experience ended up being the opposite of that and, and is what like Chris Hagelin's father said, right? That like, um, as I kept digging, eventually, my digging led me to actually a very different view of Joseph Smith, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I'd come to the point where uh, I was an atheist um, and I was extremely disillusioned with Joseph Smith. I had been so devout as a Latter-day Saint, and I'd been so kind of like inspired by Joseph Smith that to to be just deeply disillusioned with him was like crushing for me, you know. And um, I um, and it made me think that religion could be used really cynically, right, to manipulate people and so on. Uh, like I. I felt like I had believed in the restoration, but I didn't think Joseph Smith had believed in it, right? Okay. And so I felt like I'd been sort of like played, right? Um, and so, um, uh, but like I said, I, I continued the research. I um, I got to a point where I felt like I needed to leave the church, like officially. Um, and it's funny, I, I 
for all through all this journey up to this point, I'd never felt that way, you know. Um, but um, I I felt like because I was an atheist, for one thing, um, I felt like there was no place in the church for an atheist, you know. Um, and um, I also I really wanted to contribute to the community. Uh, I had this innate desire to contribute. I felt like this was my group. These were my people, already saints. But I felt like I didn't have anything to contribute because I'd think about my projects and I would think, well, I mean, these things put Joseph Smith in such a bad light that this is this is a contribution to Mormonism the way that like, you know, laying sticks of dynamite under the foundations of a building is a contribution to the building, right? <laughs> like I, it doesn't matter if I want to contribute to the community, I can't. And so, um, and so I left. I, and when I, I mean, I left, left, right? Like I put in a, a letter, like resigning my membership, right? Um, and uh, in that letter, I actually, I actually tried to write it in such a way that I, I sort of like bore my anti-testimony in the letter. I like gave reasons why I didn't believe and said flat out, like I'm believing because it's not true. And um, I, um, I even crafted the letter with the thought that like, you know, I, I realized at the time that like the, the main people who were interested in Mormon history were Mormons. I did Mormon history, and so I thought, you know, maybe I will want to be back in the church just to be able to, like, talk to Mormons about Mormon history. And I thought, um, I need to bar myself from being able to do that. So I'm going to write this letter in such a way that they will never let me back in the church wow. because I will raise so many issues that I would never be able to like explain all those issues wow. if I tried to go back in the church. I so I put read a number letter. of issues. Do you have a copy somewhere? I do. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. do. And yeah. I don't get to that. But like, um, so I was out of the church uh, officially for several years, um, five. Um, actually, I hand delivered my letter to the bishop where I was living um, on Pioneer Day. 2005. Wow. <laughs> um, Pioneer day symbolic. It's cool. Um, I, um, when I got a letter telling me that my name had been removed from the records of the church, I, I thought it would feel liberating because up to that time, I, it had felt that way. I felt like I was doing something big. Once I got the letter telling me that I was no longer a member of the church, I actually felt really deflated. I felt bad. I felt like I'd cut myself off from the only real community that I'd ever known. I felt like um, I thought about my decision to be baptized when I was eight years old. And I knew then that I was making a decision to follow Jesus. And I thought, why would I want to undo that? You know, and so I felt bad, but I thought, well, there's no going back now. I've made dang sure of that, you know. Plus, you can you can stay in the church if you have believed, but you no longer believe. And if you you're a member but you've lost your faith, but if you want to join the church and you don't believe, like they kind of want you to believe in order to join the church. Yeah. That's a problem, right? <laughs> so I thought, well, it's, it's doesn't matter. It's all done, right? Um, so I started this period in my life that I call a kind of wandering in the wilderness spiritually, right? I. Um, 
I, I was, there's a new Testament phrase that Paul uses, like without God in the world. Right. I, um, I tried to live really meaningfully. I still had things that gave me a sense of meaning, but I thought that ultimately as an atheist, I thought that ultimately everything that I cared about would be destroyed, would be gone. Right. Um, and uh, so everything was ultimately tinged, to say the very least, with sadness. And um, uh, I still wanted some kind of spirituality, though. And so I uh, one day I was reading Skeptic Magazine, which is um, Michael Shermer, the editor. It's like a, it's what it sounds like. It's like part of the skeptical movement. These people are skeptical of religion. They're skeptical of like um, everything supernatural, right? I was reading in Skeptic Magazine, and there was an ad for a book called Biocosm that the ad said that it gave a meaning behind the universe without an appeal to the supernatural. I was like... Interesting. This sounds like something for me, because mm -hmm. I want there to be some larger meaning that I'm part of, but I didn't believe in anything supernatural. So I like checked the book out um, and uh, started reading it, and it gave... like. Um, like like physics uh, stuff about like the origins of the universe and how fine-tuned the universe is for the existence of life. And I knew that the universe was fine-tuned for the existence of life. So in other words, like the con fundamental constants of gravity and other forces of the universe exist within like this really tiny, narrow, narrow, narrow band that they have to be in in order for anything to live in the universe, that if they were just like us, like like one billionth part, you know, different this direction or that direction, no living creatures would be here, you know. And um, I thought that I like knew how fine the fine tuning was, and I thought that I had an explanation. And I read this book, and it just blew me away because it showed using like really heavyweight physicists. And other scientists, like the 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 fine tuning was like like on the order of like one in ten to the two hundredth power. Like if if the fundamental laws of the universe were chosen at random, that would be the likelihood of there being uh, life on Earth, right? Or life in the universe. And I and then the explanations that I've ha that I'd had for fine tuning as an atheist, the guy just shredded. Like he even used Richard Dawkins arguments from Richard Dawkins to help him shred those arguments, which was totally unexpected for me. Right. And so then I was like really excited to read the rest of the book. Well, what's the answer, right? Like how did the universe come to be so fine tuned that for life that we could be here and I could be reading this book. Right. And, um, he, um, um, uh, his argument ended up being, that um, our distant descendants fine-tune the universe for the existence of life. Our distant, distant descendants. So he said time is a closed loop and like we, our society will advance into some great civilization that will be able to like engineer like the end of the universe such that like it will like restart like or that it will have started rather in the past like <laughs> like in this okay. way that we can be here and i'm like 
this doesn't explain anything. This doesn't make any sense, right? And I think thought, he thinks this is more likely than God. Like, I hadn't believed in God, but I didn't think God was more unlikely than this, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so suddenly, the guy created this massive problem for me in this book, and then he hadn't given me any good answer. He'd taken away my some of my arguments as an atheist. He hadn't given me anything to, real to replace them with. So I started wondering, is there like a mind behind the universe? Why are, why am I here? What's going on, you know? And then there were other kind of steps along this journey, right, where I started re-examining some of the life experiences that I'd had, like an experience one day when I was 18 and I was, had left the church archives and I was going to the bus stop to head home, right? Uh, I had like a voice in my mind, like a thought warning me about a certain thing that ended up like saving my life, where I, I would have been like plowed down by a, a like, you know, like two and a half ton wow. car, right? Like, um, like a giant old Buick, like they don't make cars this big anymore, right? <laughs> but like, um, and uh, I had thought later on in life that I'd come up with an explanation for that, right? And then I started thinking about it more and it was like, Actually, no, my explanation, I, I was I was living in Salt Lake again. I was walking past the spot where this had happened and thinking about this experience all the time and eventually realizing that I couldn't explain that one either, right? And so I thought, so there's a mind behind the universe and this mind like cares about me, has like actually saved my life. So there's, there's a God, you know? And so I started trying to figure out, well, what, if there's a God, like what, religion should I be? And and I actually attached myself to a beautiful, expansive faith called the Baha'i faith um, that really just emphasizes like what they call the oneness of humankind. And I could talk about that a lot because it's really cool. Um, but um, I had only as a Baha'i, um, Baha'is don't talk a lot about the afterlife. They certainly believe in one. And I think there actually is a lot of Baha'i teaching about the afterlife, but I didn't really encounter it. So I had like a really vague sense of life after death. And um, then calamity struck. Uh, my younger brother, uh, Charles, who was 25, just suddenly died. Oh, and gosh. I talked with him the night before. Uh, he was just like the best guy in the world, oh, right? And I just was the whole family, we were destroyed. And had his viewing was the saddest thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, there wasn't anybody there who wasn't completely torn apart. And, um, you know, I saw my brother's body laid out there and I thought, this is the last time I'm going to see my brother because I thought maybe I would encounter him in some sort of ethereal way, like like some sort of mind, just, we would just be minds or something. And, um, but I wouldn't see him in a body. I wouldn't like hear his voice. I wouldn't see like his mannerisms that really like expressed like the kind, uh, amazing person that he was. And, um, I, uh, it really started me searching again. Um, I started thinking a lot more about life after death. And I started thinking a lot more about, um, I had attached myself to the faith that I then 
was attached to because its teachings were so expansive and beautiful, but I hadn't been really certain, like, was this a revelation from God or not, you know? And um, so I started really, like, thinking about different religions and thinking about, like, the concept of a resurrection, right? Because, like, was that true? Because Baha'is don't believe in a resurrection, right? And could I actually encounter my brother again as like the whole person that he was, right? And um, I, um, I just there was kind of a series of like providential events in my life um, where a good friend um, like had um, like given me, uh, bought me some books. Um, he offered to buy me some books that I wanted. Um, and I bought one called The Resurrection. I got one called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. Really read about the New Testament evidence on the resurrection and read Wright's historical arguments arguing that the resurrection was a real, Christ's resurrection was a real thing. And I started really considering that and thinking, you know, feeling compelled by this. Um, uh, and, and, you know, his, he argues that for the, to make sense of the data of the New Testament and early Christianity, there had to be at least two things that the, the tomb had to be empty and the disciples had to see Christ. They had to see, you know, someone, they had to see what they took to be the risen Christ, right? But if you take these two things together, well, why was the tomb empty and why were these people seeing Jesus, right? Then it makes a good case for, well, because like, I know something that could explain both those things. He rose, right? Like God raised him. And um, since I already believed in God, I believe that God could, and that God was involved in our lives, I believe God could perform miracles. And so I concluded that, yeah, Christ had been resurrected, and then that had all kinds of implications for me. And I um, just was, um, I accepted Christ, and I remember thinking about it as I was like walking on um, like South Temple to my to home that evening after I'd really let all this sink in, and. Um, I just felt wave after wave of peace come over me. It was like a peace. It wasn't peace like the absence of distress. It was peace like a palpable presence, right? Like like so thick you could cut it with a knife, right? And just I just felt God's love, you know. And 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 the phrase from Paul, the peace that passes understanding, uh, came to my mind. And um, so I was a Christian again now, you know. And um, I, um, I don't know, I, I kind of looked into like different churches. I remembered, I started remembering that reading the Book of Mormon, that like I started remembering that one of the things earlier in my life that helped me feel closest to Christ was reading the Book of Mormon. And so I thought, maybe I'll start reading the Book of Mormon. Now, mind you, at the time, I was... I perfectly certain that Joseph Smith had written it and he'd written it as an opportunist, right? He didn't even believe in it, like, you know, what it was saying. Um, but I thought whatever he thought, wherever he was getting these ideas, like, 
there's something substantive here and it's really helped me. It's borne good fruit in my life, so I'm going to try reading it. So uh, I did. I started reading it and this seemed to really be helpful to me spiritually. And then I got really confused. I was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I reading the Book of Mormon when I know that, you know, I know, right, that like Joseph Smith like wrote this and like he didn't, he didn't believe in it. And like, you know, like but I'm trying to follow Christ and I'm I'm certain that he's real, you know, that's real. And so I just thought I'm just going to kind of, you know, to use the proverbial language, like sort of put this on the shelf for right now, you know. And um, then um, months later, um, not that long, but months later, I um, I was doing a paper. I was writing a paper um, actually for a, a graduate course uh, that I was taking. Uh, I was writing a paper on the first vision. And it was about, I was arguing that Joseph Smith's first vision was his initiation as a seer. Now, I didn't think he actually, at this time they actually had a first vision, but I thought there was a narrative of the first vision. And the point of the narrative was partly to, to show that how he had attained, obtained powers as a seer. Okay. Right. Um, cool. Like this is his first vision. So it's the first time he has spiritual sight or second sight, right? But there were other things that I could piece together that made more sense of this. And um, so as I was as I was doing this, I, I had also been working on figuring out things that were in the lost 116 pages using the sources that, you know, some of which I talked about in the other episode. And um, things started clicking like crazy, like, I started seeing how, as I talked about in the other episode, like the the brother of Jared um, on the mount was actually like a whole temple text related to the endowment, that the story of Mosiah the first from getting the interpreters, right, given by Joseph Smith Sr., um, was also like very much an endowment text. Uh, I started seeing that um, like... Uh, aspects of the first vision were closely related to the endowment. Um, and up, up until this point, I had thought that Justice Smith didn't know anything about the Nauvoo endowment until he became a Freemason in 1842. So to find that like in the 1820s, and even at the very beginning of the 1820s, you've already got like endowment elements there was just like mind-bending for me, especially as I started looking at the complexity of what I was finding and thinking that some of the structure of the endowment is already implicit in this vision that Joseph was claiming when he's like, you know, in the middle, like, like when he's just a young teenager, right? So beginning of the 1820s. And I thought, he doesn't institute the endowment until he's like 36 or whatever, right? Like, how many, like, 14, 15-year-old kids are like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make up a story about a vision that I had. And that vision is actually going to be, have the seeds in it of, like, this ritual that I want to enact later when I start a religion. But I'm going to wait to start that. I'm going to wait to enact that ritual for, like, 20-some-odd years. Like, when you're 14 or 15 years old, 20 years is 
an eternity, yeah. right? You, you this do, you, arbitrary age that I'm right, going to be. You, you do 36. not have this yeah, long-range oh. life plan at that no point. Way. Right? I'm, I'm 27, and I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm 36. Right. I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> right. So, like, it just as the more I looked at the, the complexity of what I was seeing, the power of what I was seeing, and so on, the, the less sense it made with the model of Justice Smith that I was using of Justice Smith as opportunist, right? I also started seeing other things that, <clears throat> I mean, I've got a video, a presentation I did at the FAIR conference in 2019, I guess, just last oh, year. Okay. Um, and it also talks about why I came back to the church, but it talks, oh, cool. it develops this aspect more specifically okay. about the first vision we'll as an endowment. Yeah. That'd be awesome. And it uh, talks about how um, the evidence that I saw, that I see that um, when Justice Smith comes back from the first vision, he tells us, he talks to his mother. He's exhausted He from this experience. He leans up against the fireplace. His mother asks him, what is the matter? He says, it is all right, mother. I'm well enough off. I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. Full stop. Like, that's all he tells her. You've just seen God, and all you have to say is, your religion's not true, right? Like, <laughs> um, so the thing is, Joseph Smith was only telling people the things about the first vision that were relevant to them at the time. Right. Um, that's all his mother needed to know as far as he was concerned at the time was Presbyterian church isn't true, you know. Um, Joseph Smith doses the first vision out in little doses to people across time. He never gives the full story. We, we can look at the story with his mother and we can think, well, he didn't tell her the whole story, but he told us the whole story. What makes you think he told us the whole story? Right? I think, actually, if you look at his various accounts and the fact that he gives some details in certain accounts but not in other accounts, the details all fit together into a larger narrative, right? But he's never telling one person on a single occasion the whole thing, right? Um, so you look at, uh, I realized that um, there are aspects that he was holding back, right? And if you look at various accounts that he gave, he gives hints sometimes at further aspects of his experience. So he talks about, in one account, um, how um, when the, I'm trying to remember his words, that those will come to me in just a sec. In, in another account, he says, um, I think it's his official account, when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, gazing up into heaven, right? And then in the other account I'm thinking of, he had said, oh, he said, my mind was taken away from the objects which surrounded me, right? So we are used to picturing Joseph Smith. He's there in the grove and he's just like looking and he sees the objects around him. He sees the trees and everything. And then like he sees, right, like this, this descent, right, this theophany, right? Um, and um, like he's seeing all these things at the same time. And then like, you know, the, the vision is over and he just sees like the trees around him or whatever. That's not what he's describing, right? So he's actually describing initially sees God's glory in the trees and so on. But then, like, eventually, he doesn't see the things surrounding him, 
anymore. It's like he's transported, at least his mind, right? Like someplace else, right? Whoa. And uh, when at the end of his experience, it's like he's like coming to again, right? So um, there's a sermon in Nauvoo. And again, I, I developed this at greater length in that video. There's a sermon in Nauvoo where I argue from what he's saying that he's suggesting um, he talks, he's talking about the first vision, but he talks about also like gazing into the heavens, gazing into heaven and what you see there. And I argue that he's connecting the two. He's saying that as part of his first vision, he saw into heaven, right? So in other words, the first vision is a two-part experience. It's not just like God comes down to the grove. It's then God lifts Joseph up to heaven. Whoa. And, and Whoa, so okay. um, I, I realized that this has all kinds of implications because if you think about it, that's a nutshell of the entire plan of redemption, right? So the early Christians had this formula that they gave God became man in order that man might become God, right? So, so right, like as the Book of Mormon says, Abinadi um, predicts in King Benjamin, right? God himself shall come down, right, and take on flesh, right? But then what's the point of that? Well, God's coming down to our level to lift us up to God's level, right? So we can be like God, you know? And so I was realizing, wait, that idea was implicit already at the beginning of the restoration, like the idea of like theosis or deification, right? That, that we can become like God. And this like powerful vision of like the, the plan of redemption. And I just like, it all just like blew me away, right? There's more, right? But it just, it just like exploded my head. And I- Because it's exploding um, my head right now. Well, I, like I- <laughs> This is I, awesome. I, I just like realized almost immediately as these things were coming together, like, I am going back to the church. Wow. And I didn't, it wasn't like, I still had some things to work out in my head before I like fully committed to that. But it was like a realization almost immediately, you know? Um, so I initiated that process uh, and it was terrifying because when I went to leave the church, if you go to leave the church, there is there are so many resources online to tell you how to do it. Here's how to write your exit letter, oh my right? Uh, and so on. You know, like here's a phone number of somebody at you know who handles the resignation letters at church headquarters. If you have any trouble, call him. Right? Like here's a sample letter. Here are legal considerations. Here's like you know all these things. Wow. When I went to come back, I couldn't find anything. All I knew is I had to meet with church leaders. That was it. And um, so I, I contacted the local bishop who I didn't know, and I just talked with them. Um, I had things to confess, right, uh, from my time outside the church. He just listened so beautifully. And he told me, he said, afterward, he said, the Lord wants you back in his church. And um, uh, he talked to the stake president about what needed to happen next. And the stake president said um, that we would have to revisit my letter. No way. So remember, I crafted that letter to keep myself from ever being able to come back because I didn't think there was, I, I didn't think I would want to. And then later, I mean, I don't know. I thought, long story. But Is like, that a usual just, practice? 
Let's I, look back at your letter and. I think so. I saw. Wow. I don't know. Oh, no. um, but so I went and found a copy of my letter and then I cried because I remembered some of it, but I didn't remember all of it until I'd been I read like it again. Five years, right? Mm-hmm. I cried and I called up the bishop in a panic and I said, they're never going to let me back into the church. And he told me, he said, son, um, if the church couldn't forgive, it couldn't be the Lord's church. And um, I, uh, he had me take the discussions. Was that fun or was it kind it was, of nail uh, pulling or teeth pulling? Actually, it was really cool. Like, I actually felt like I got more insight, even though, like, be- right before the mission, well, the bishop didn't want the missionaries to know that I used to be a member of the church because he didn't want them to leave anything out in okay. discussions. <laughs> so immediately before they arrived, I moved my bookcases with every conceivable book on Joseph Smith and the origins oh, of the church cool. and the okay. Book of Mormon. <laughs> I moved those out of the hall because it suddenly occurred to me, they will be walking right through here. So I moved those into my room. Um, but... Um, but it actually, it ended up being really, like, edifying, you know? Oh, cool. And um, I've always wondered what it'd be like from also, an investigator point of it view. It also was, like, a fascinating anthropological ex- experience, right? I like bet. Because I haven't been on one side yeah. of that. I haven't been on the missionary side. Then to be on the investigator yes. side. Right? And this That's was only about 10 years ago, right? Uh-huh. From the time, it, 2020. Yeah. Oh, this wow. is 2010, yeah, 2010. Um, so um, less than two months after I first met with that bishop, um, oh, well, actually I should say this. <laughs> the bishop told me, I wondered how I was going to like account for the things in my letter. Like I was terrified of those, because, partly because I'm a better writer than I am speaker, right? And I thought I carefully crafted that letter when I wrote it, and now I'm going to like go through this what line by line in a meeting with my bishop and say, well... On the spot. <laughs> like, yeah, right? <laughs> and so the bishop told me he felt inspired that I needed to write a new letter requesting admission back into the church, just like I'd written one okay. to leave. Cool. You know? And so I thought, <laughs> this, right? Yeah. And so I wrote that second letter and that second letter swallowed the first one whole right and like um i met with the bishop um and one of his counselors um shortly afterward he asked me to read the letter uh to them out loud which i did immediately afterward he said that on behalf of the church uh, he wanted to extend to me an invitation to be baptized and um, uh, it was amazing, right? It was beautiful. And um, just because this is about, because this episode's about faith crisis, there's something I should add that would be particularly apropos. So I was baptized on a Sunday, right? And I, um, one of the things I had wondered about when I decided to come back to the church is would I be able to handle church? Because when I had left, when I, First, when I'd stopped attending before I left, church had been driving me crazy. Everything about it, right? Like the, the comments oh, people I can made. Relate. Like, I'm right in that. <laughs> That's me right now. 
I can sympathize. Mm. Um, so I came back to the church and I thought, this isn't, this isn't like I remember. Like, the people, like, since when did people make such good comments in church? Like, things, like, it seemed like things had changed, like, over and over. And eventually I figured out the church couldn't have changed that much in five years. It had, what changed was, had to be me, right? Mm. Um, and so um, I, uh, so I went to church, you know, these couple months, right, before I um, was going to be rebaptized. I was going to be rebaptized on this, you know, Sunday. And so I went through all my church meetings, and the last meeting that day was elders quorum, right? So, so the final meeting of these two months of going to church before I get rebaptized, elders quorum, and we have this lesson on priesthood authority, and the teacher decides to have us do skits, right, to like illustrate divine authority. So he has one guy do a skit where like uh, a couple guys do a skit where like um, one guy is like like going down, driving down the road and another guy like pulls him over and says, sorry, sir, I noticed you didn't properly fully stop at that stop sign. So I'm going to like give you this ticket or whatever. But the guy stopping him is not actually a policeman. Right. And so, of course, the, the guy, the drivers of the car is like, well, who are you? to stop me, you don't have any authority to do this, right? So then, like, you know, then there's, like, another skit, and there's, like, another skit. So the last skit, right? So this is, like, the very final thing that happens before I get at church, before I get rebaptized. Uh, there's this skit where this guy, he does a great job with the skit. He says, like, you know, the brothers, like, the Lord has given me this revelation that, you know, the second coming is near, and as a test of our faith before the second coming, the you know, um, Lord wants us to go with our families up, you know, to the top of Mount St. Helens and like throw ourselves in, you know, um, I guess he was picturing it as like an active volcano, right? <laughs> um, throw ourselves in, throw our families in and, and ourselves and he'll save us. And then, uh, and then everybody's like laughing and laughing, right? Um, and then, uh, and then uh, one guy says, yeah, like we do that if anybody except the prophet told us to. And then another guy's like, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. We're not laughing about the same thing because I'm laughing about the fact that this whole thing is completely bonkers, right? That we <laughs> yeah. would ever do this. Oh, no. And you're laughing because it's the wrong guy telling us to do it, right? Oh, and I thought, whoa. like, I actually saw it as kind of like... Kind of like um, God has a sense of humor, and he wanted to let me know that um, the church that I was going back to wasn't completely different than the one that I thought I was leaving <laughs> before, <laughs> right? That there are weird authoritarian views, things like that, you know? Um, but I went back to the church, and, you know, like I was beautifully accepted, Back into oh, the church cool. just beautifully. I I'd been very involved in online discussion groups. I posted on one of them the the fair boards. There were like two hundred people who came on to welcome me back to wow. the church. Oh, right. cool. And and a year later, uh, when I applied to like have a restoration of uh, temple blessings, priesthood blessings, when you have that restoration of blessings they actually change your membership record so that it doesn't show 
your rebaptism date, it shows your original baptism date. When you were eight years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that if you go to another ward, no one will ever know ah. that you were out of the church unless you tell them. Right? Cool. So, so, and they read, anyway, so it's like a, a clean slate, right? Um, so, like, the church very much believes in forgiveness, you know, and I experienced that. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm very grateful, and hopefully that helps anybody in our audience uh, to, to hear that or to, to watch Don give that story. And we are going to do a part two because there's more that Don and I want to talk about. And maybe this is a good length of an episode to stop. And next time we will release a part two where we, you know, kind of we talked about our stories and kind of personal stuff in this story. And then the next is we're going to talk about more faith crisis stuff and more kind of what, what did you say earlier? Well, kind of like for me, kind of like maybe things that I learned through my faith journey and like maybe things I think you wanted to ask like what would have helped me yes. to know back yes. then and just kind of to give a little larger perspective cool. because I think that's I didn't have a lot of perspective going into that journey and like I have a lot more now cool you know? okay yes we are going to come back and please subscribe so you can make sure that you're notified when the next episode comes back, when we have Don back. And like this video, so more videos like this and more videos from the channel can pop up into your recommended <laughs> and you can keep watching us forever and ever. And thank you for watching and we'll see you next time. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.